today, tonight, whenever it is you might be listening to this, our Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show coming in after the 104th Indianapolis 500. I don't know, this might be a five-parter if I'm not careful. We have enough of your questions where I could probably speak for the next 24 hours, but thankfully I won't. Uh, It is 9.46 p.m. on a Monday night here in a fire-ridden, smoky Northern California. My wife, as always, just did exemplary things today at physical therapy. In theory, today is the first day of a slowdown in content after the Indy 500. can tell you that I have failed miserably in making that a reality for myself. It's not a complaint, just an admission Uh, So I just a few minutes ago filed a 5,000-plus word feature titled Stories for Justin's Girls. I am pissed at myself, very pissed at myself, for not getting this done sooner. Uh, This is the fifth anniversary today of Justin's death, August 24th, 2015. Admittedly, of all the interviews that I did, I didn't get the final one done until late this morning, Monday morning, and that was no one's fault, just playing phone tag with a dear mutual friend of ours, but really wanted to have this done and filed last night so that this was something folks would have waking up today and something to add to Justin's memory. Uh, So hoping you'll get a chance to read that. Tuesday, whenever this goes up, I don't know. Plus, uh, I think I'm going to have to go make dinner for us here very soon. So I just wanted to dive in here real quick. Say thank you to all of you, especially to the Justice Brothers. If you've got a chance to listen to the feature podcast I did with my pal Ed Justice Jr. talking about their 75 years they just celebrated participating in the Indy 500. That might be one to digest. Also to Cooper Tires. Definitely torontomotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm just going to try and get a couple of questions in here before I have to go and then pick up tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll mention here as well, the final thing I'll mention, because, Lord, uh, there's plenty to talk about, all driven by you instead of me. Big, ginormous thank you to torontomotorsports.com. That is Derek Koska, our friend from Canada, mentioned that I wanted to do some sort of something charitable over the 500. We were planning to do so in May prior to COVID uh, at the Indie Memorabilia Show, and we had plans. Those plans didn't work like so many other plans. So the thing we came up with uh, was wanting to help our friends at Racing for Cancer, who helped me and my wife, last year when we were in a pretty hard spot, when they didn't even know we were in a hard spot. And so Derek from torontomotorsports.com said, hey, uh, let's do some incentivized giveaways. If you donate at racingforcancer.org, I believe it is, minimum of $28, which matches Ryan hunter number. This is the charity that RHR created. Well, we'll send you a bunch of stuff. And so we've got buttons and stickers, and the Andretti team is sending some signed hero cards, I believe, from all of their Indy 500 drivers. And we've got a couple of T-shirts to give away, all just as thank yous for doing a beautiful thing. And I heard back from 
Tom at Racing for Cancer today. And in just like two or three days, just nothing more than social media, uh, seeing if we could get folks who would help. I know many of you did. Um, I don't have down to the penny in front of me, but the round number was $5,700 you all raised to help Racing for Cancer, knowing that with COVID, they're unable to do their big, big annual Indy 500 gala and fundraiser, which is where they bring in the bulk of the money each year. So in the absence of being able to do that, just so proud of so many of you, my family here with our silly little week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, um, y'all put $5,700 up on the board just from a really basic social media thing. Um, y'all are just amazing. So just thank you. Uh, immensely thankful to you all. And let's start talking about IndyCar and the Indy 500. Seriously, this is going to get broken up into at least two shows, if not more because I don't want to do a bunch of really long episodes this week. So we're going to start off with one about Takuma Sato, and then we're going to get to Red Flags. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to get any farther than that tonight. So music bed, I love I love this intro. I love the music bed here. I change it up each year. I don't know. Uh, I might keep this one for more than a year. We'll have to see. Uh, we're going to go to two questions about our man Takuma Sato, one from Reddit, North Sound Arc. Who says, having won two Indy 500s, does this make Takuma Sato the GOAT among Japanese race car drivers? I kind of have to, right? And, of course, there could be a driver that I'm not thinking of having seen, I believe, followed just about every Japanese Formula One driver, uh, knowing pretty heavily Japanese sports car drivers, I mean, there might be like a MotoGP rider I'm not thinking of. I'm just thinking four wheels along with your question here. I I would say Takuma, how's this? I can't think of anyone else, right? I can't even think of a rival that we might say, well, let's weigh the merits. So uh, unless I'm missing one, and please tell me if I am, I think we've got to talk about Takuma being that guy as a two-time Indy 500 winner. Um Jerry Sudeth, our good pal Jerry, says Takuma Sato entered elite company with his second win on Sunday. How should we rate and evaluate his career at IMS so far? It's a pretty remarkable thing, Jerry. I might even expand it out to his career in IndyCar as a whole. He's done the rarest of things, and that is late in life. He's, what, 43 since he's been about 40-ish, 39, 40, the guy is just a totally different person. Uh, I don't honestly know what the major malfunction was. His reputation before he got to IndyCar, and certainly in the first many years in IndyCar was, he is going to go fast like a rocket. He is going to get pole positions. He is going to do a bunch of things Eh, half the time, 40, 30% of the year, whatever it was, he's going to pop up and be a real thorn in the leader's side. Maybe get that pole, get that fastest lap, know that he had that one win, what, back in 2013 with Foyt. 
But too many times he was going to have the big brain fade. I'm saying nothing new here. It's an old trope. But yeah, the guy just found new and inventive ways to make mistakes, make the same mistakes. And that became his reputation. Lovely, warm, heartfelt, engaging guy. Just as a person, just top shelf. But if you're a really lovely person, but a bit of a bumbling character in your profession, you know, we, we, for those of us who are old enough to have watched Mr. Bean, like what makes Mr. Bean funny? Well, the mistakes and that kind of hapless life, there's nothing that you would laugh at that was positive. It's all at his expense because the guy just gets most things wrong. You don't want to be the Mr. Bean in whatever your profession is. And I'm not saying Takuma was all the way there, but it just felt like it too often. When's he going to do the thing that ruins his day? If not someone else, uh, there we go in the wall. Of course, he's made a couple of mistakes. Every driver makes a couple of mistakes per year, but that guy has disappeared, Jerry. And so you look at the Indy 500, you realize that in 2012, whether he should or shouldn't have tried that pass on Dario going into the last lap, you know, of course, his phrase, no attack, no chance. But this is a guy who, if you think about it, more often than not, he's been in the hunt at the speedway. And this is someone who clearly giving the time to refine his mastery on super speedways, especially now at IMS. This guy is, <laughs> he is as dangerous uh, a threat for victory, I would say, of any driver in the field. And so I know we had Elio Castro Neves, three-time winner. Obviously, there's a bunch of one-time winners, but there are a number of drivers that I would say leading up to this year's 500 Jerry to close that we look at and go, Oh yeah, got to Got to be afraid of that guy. There's what four, five, six, maybe seven. As I mentioned in our end of day video with Robin, he and I seemingly named everybody retired. Rick Mears might win this race. Uh, Johnny Rutherford might win. Not once did we mention the guy who qualified third. It's just a reminder of how stupid I can be. And so what did the guy go out and do? A just master class. Speaking with him last night after the win, main thing I wanted to understand, hopefully you listened to the uh, Catching Up with Taku podcast that I put up, was just tell me about this from the inside. Tell me about what you were doing the strategy, the fuel, the you name it. And he laid it out and said, yeah, first hundred laps, straight going to school, trying all kinds of different things, putting it in the mental bank. And that's going to help me shape what I do when we get down to crunch time. And I mean, I also spoke with my friends at Chip Ganassi Racing last night and they were, they had no words, legitimately, not an exaggeration. After the race, team's leadership just sat in silence next to one another, didn't know what to say, because how did they not win? And so there was that sense of, well, what did they do wrong to allow Takuma Sato to then win? Uh, and I'm not saying that they were 
promoting that narrative. But just I can tell you from speaking with a lot of people, a lot of phone calls that I made to folks on pit lane, et cetera, et cetera, after the race, just getting the vibe, getting the feel, getting insights about strategy and such and whatnot. Everybody thought that Sato was going to run out of fuel. That was wrong. Uh, seemingly, everybody thought that Dixon had the speed and the ability to go back past him. He did not. Uh, this was not the Ganassi team snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. This was the Ganassi team having victory in the first 170-ish laps of the race and having a guy chasing Scott Dixon, who was absolutely primed to go past him and win the race. Uh, That's the thing that was the shock that no one fully grasped uh, outside of Takuma's team. This wasn't a joke. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a gift. This wasn't uh, the Ganassi team's goof up. This was Takuma being ready to pounce, primed to do it, making crazy fuel mileage, tweaking the the fuel trim in the short shoots like you're only there for a split second but even then he's dialing down the power to save some extra right this is a this is a real thing jerry so this is why i'm so high and happy on what they did this is something where they absolutely went to school came up with what they believed was going to be the formula to win rolled it out and won and there were many times prior to taku getting past dixie after the final pit stop where you could see that dixie just had easy speed if rossi got ahead or even if takuma was ahead or whomever was ahead he had easy speed to catch up and go by whatever it was that either they might have missed a little bit on tire pressure or aero balance or something for that final stint, or if it was a case of Takuma and his team nailing pressures, aero balance, and just having a rocket to unleash for that final sprint to the checkered flag. This was so cool, Jerry. So if we're talking about rating... I don't know if we've seen a better performance ever in his life in IndyCar. And I did follow F1 pretty closely when he was in F1. I can't, I'm just saying, I can't think of any major motor race he has participated in where all of his skills were required and he aced every single thing. So IMS When we go back next year, 279 days from now or whatever it is, I will never make the mistake as long as that man is entered in the race of discounting him as one of the top two or three threats. It's going to be Scott Dixon. It's going to be Takuma Sato. And, you know, we probably make push it out to four. It's going to be Pagano. It's going to be Rossi, Hunter Ray, power slash new garden maybe right these are going to be the automatics but takuma is not going to be fifth or sixth in those automatics he's going to be right up there because he just showed us jerry he deserves that kind of fear and respect seriously man i am so happy for him and to be doing this in the the eve of his career that's just even more badass Go to some questions about a red 
flag. I uh, tell you what, my uh, little Twitter post last night, which I really didn't follow up with a whole lot of explanation because I wasn't in the mood. Uh, man, I love it when people decide that piling on is just the coolest thing. I've probably also done that before, so I can't be too hypocritical, but it was kind of fun to watch people have a what they thought was a shot to take me down. So you got me. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal Daniel Summers. Gill. do you think the race should have been red flagged following Spencer Pickett's crash? Hashtag me personally. Thankfully, he was okay, but it would have taken too long to repair the end of pit lane to an acceptable standard to only run one, maybe two laps under green to complete the Indy 500. Uh, Darren Wicken asked the question, why wasn't a red flag thrown with four laps to go? Um, if they determined that they couldn't fix the attenuator in a reasonable time, they could end the race. Nothing lost. Uh, the next one here from Mike DiCardo. Mike, I'll get to yours a little bit separately because it goes in a few different directions. So my little comment of uh, we've got a driver in Spencer laid out genuinely on the front straight length on the racing surface um, why isn't this thing being red flagged? I also added, right, just again, I guess this part wasn't really picked up. Sato was is going, would win either way. Just again, whatever amount of characters that I had available was just trying to convey that, like, I'm not so much talking about the green flag competitiveness. Sato's going to win, right? Dixon had nothing to catch him, but that part seemed to be overlooked. Um, so Daniel, I did think it should have been red flagged because we had a driver laying on the front straight being attended to by safety personnel. I realize that cars were sent down pit lane. I get all of that. I'm just saying that the gravity of what was taking place, the racing, my mindset, maybe not yours might be totally wrong. But my mindset was, if we have a freaking driver in a monster crash who got out of the car, thought he was woozy maybe, but okay, but all of a sudden they've got him laying flat on the ground, that made me stop thinking about racing and saying, hey, uh, let's hit the pause button here. Uh, Caution isn't a pause. Caution's a slowdown. The pause is the red flag. Let's stop this and handle this. Now, that's number one. Someone else asked, would you have said the same thing if this has happened on lap six? Absolutely. First thought was, this is look, could be severe. I don't know. We don't know. The visuals suggest something pretty damn serious. Let's pause the racing part and go human part here and care about the person because we can always go back to yellow or green, whatever it is. Let's just stop, get this figured out with Spencer, and then the racing part, we got. We can figure that out. What do we do? How do we do it? What do we want to do? The next part about the attenuator, again, I've seen all kinds of things. It's going to take an hour. It's going to take a year. It's going to get, I don't know how long it's going to take to repair that and allow a return to racing. The TV thing was mentioned as well by many. Well, you know, it was going to take an hour. They're not going to extend that for, again, totally get all that. Driver first. 
if and if they had gotten him up and out and in whatever amount of time great uh i don't think they're gonna cut away if the race extends 5 10 15 minutes so first thought was just primarily driver then we can come back out of red handle things as such the comment about sato was going to win either way again i didn't foresee going red not going red as changing the outcome of the race at all so it wasn't a well we need a one lap shootout and that could change the result now i I, again didn't see how that could because dixon was losing time significantly taku was pulling away with ease and again this thing just looks sealed graham did not have the speed to get there new garden you know nobody had the speed to catch sato so again just sharing mindset here if there was a chance to go back to green that's the one thing that stood out as an option and just thinking strictly for the fans sense if if spencer had been in a position where he was okay for them to put into the ambulance in a somewhat timely manner and there was enough time left to go back to potentially green or something cool waited three months for this everyone's been super patient like we want the indy 500 if fans have to wait a little bit longer i think everyone's demonstrated the ability to do that again if we're talking an hour 90 minutes whatever it's not reasonable totally get that if it wasn't that length of time and the opportunity to go back to green even for one lap was there just for the fans having mentioned that i didn't think the outcome was going to change at all just for the fans to be able to say man we have buckled in this pardon my french this has been a shitty ride over the last couple of months everything has changed date change fans yes fans partially fans a little bit no fans this that everything else canceled all the other traditions like if 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 a whole bunch of things worked out in a capacity where there could be a resumption of racing even just for one lap for fans i thought that would have been an awesome thing but even if it wasn't even if it was nope no way it's going to happen we're going to just start the cars and circulate and finish under yellow well guess what you get the same thing you had you get the same circulation under yellow with the field frozen there's no difference in the outcome all you get is demonstrating humanity being the number one priority so not saying humanity was something being freely or readily ignored by indycar just saying that external impressions suggested that hmm i don't know if big picture stuff was really being fully processed so i do think it should have been red flagged specifically for spencer if there was any option to get back to racing with time window and tv and all these other things caveats in place great but if not if nothing else you definitely reminded the folks at home that you know what we are truly in this together and we're caring for one of our own and even if the guy jumps up off of the track and leaps over pit wall and does a handstand 
and starts breakdancing. Awesome. Look how good Spencer Piggott is. He's fine. But attenuators trashed. TV windows get narrow. Uh, even though he's a thousand percent fine and he is a badass breakdancer too. We're going to have to just resume the race, knock out these couple of laps under yellow. The guy who was leading and sealed in place before is still sealed in place and still going to win the race. No harm, no foul. That's at least what went through my brain in a quick flash. Uh, Mike DiCardo, a little bit of a rant here, as you mentioned. Uh, I'll distill it into a little bit of animosity. It says, why in the flat earth was it supposed to be the greatest spectacle in the world? Um, but it was all dependent upon a network TV window talking about, I guess the lack of red and not finishing under green says hashtag me personally. This feels like it's a disgrace. So it takes two hours to repair the attenuator. So what red flag, the thing and let the shootout play out. This is supposed to be about the fans. Really could have fooled me. says it's about NBC. I'm still angry. 24 hours later, Mike, you have a second point here where you ask, why is Danica Patrick paid referring to her, NBC Sports co-broadcast hosting and color analyst spot when Townsend Bell and Paul Tracy weren't doing color analysis, driver analysis. Uh, You mentioned she adds almost nothing and is dull as dirt, and you close with saying, and I like, all caps, her. I mean, I don't know if we're covering any new ground here, Mike. Uh, Danica is a very polarizing figure in the sport, like you know a number of other polarizing figures in the sport. I think some of the things that I heard her offer on Sunday, I was like, wow, that's really deep. Like really seriously might have been some of the best analysis and insights that I'd heard from anyone all day stood out to me as coming from Danica. I know that there were some other things as well that I just thought, like, okay, I don't know what that is. Um, I mean, the thing that bummed me out the most was, what was it? Was it qualifying or carb? I think carb day with the comments about her shoes and sexualizing her and what by Paul, uh, that the moment that it happened was super uncle creepy. Uh, and yeah, we know exactly what we get from Paul Tracy. I would say we also know exactly what we get from Danica. There are clearly folks at NBC sports who look at the two of them and say, thumbs up. That's who we want and what we want for the different things that they bring. Whether that is something that every viewer agrees with, I can't say. None of these things are new. I can tell you this. I thought last year when it was Danica and Dale Jr. and they were trying to remember if it was Tariko in the uh, pit cart, the end of pit lane there, Uh, but when it was the trio, I thought that worked really well because you had the ability for them to bounce things off of one another. Now with she and Mike socially distance and Mike being more of a overall play by play guy, not a specialist in motor racing. Maybe that's the thing that didn't pan out so well. 
And then Danica not being in the booth with PT and Townsend and Lee. Again, I can tell you, having done a little bit of this myself on TV, when you're kind of remote, hearing voices in your ear, not seeing people face to face, not getting the tone and the whatever else, it's not always the easiest thing to make it come across like everyone's on the same page and picking up all the little references and nuances. So, yeah, in this COVID broadcast where things were very different, but I think if we go back next year and have a normal race, we don't talk about things like this because they don't stand out as anything unique to talk about. Uh, let's go to, hey, I'm getting to some other things because I haven't heard from my wife telling me to shut up uh, and go to other things. Um, Jens Jensen, who reminds me that I should use Y's and not J's. I uh, says, should Chip Ganassi Racing have gone for the go to the front and stay there approach that Ray Hollerman Lanigan chose for Takuma Sato instead of being too confident that Dixon could overtake him on the final lap anyway uh, when he would run out of fuel, question mark? Uh, says, hashtag me personally, I think they were too confident about Dixon's speed advantage that they didn't even calculate with track position um, what would happen if a yellow came to the end. Um, yeah, well, and we've got a question here on that from Mike Jablo too, similar thing. I don't know if overconfidence is the word, and you didn't say that, I'm saying that. I just don't think they had a full grasp of what was going on in the number 30 Rahal Letterman Lanigan Honda. I don't think they had a proper grasp of how much of a threat Takuma Sato was going to be or could be. And I'm raising my hand here too. It's not like he had shown that in a previous stint or one before where it was like, oh my goodness, the strength being unleashed here is so formidable that the Ganassi team had better drastically change their approach over the last two stints or three or whatever the number might be. This was, this was Takuma and team springing one on the Ganassi team. They had something hidden away. They had something in the bag in terms of speed that only they knew about. Uh, the fuel side, which you mentioned, again, I spoke with uh, some folks today from the team, and they said, seriously, if you just listen to our radio, the chatter you would have heard was not kind of coded, you know, uh, we weren't trying to sell a dummy. Oh, yeah, we're great on fuel. You know, like there was, if you just listened to it, it was really straightforward, organic conversation. We were good, going to be good. Even I believe they tweeted out. <laughs> we're good to go. So this was making no bones of trying to pull one over on anybody. And they, again, truly say, and I believe they were good to go. So there was a misperception that nobody could maybe save fuel better than Scott Dixon. We know he's the best, but I mean, Alexander Rossi in his very first Indy 500 showed us how quickly a talented driver could master that art. Takuma Sato's done, what, 10 of these now? Whatever the number is. Uh, yeah, this guy knows how to do what he had to do. I just don't think they fully grasped. Not so much the we have outrageous speed and can beat everybody. I don't think they maybe fully factored in 
that the guy that they was was running with them was really truly truly prepared to go not just at Dixon but past Dixon and if you look at the amount of distance that he pulled out in those final laps before we went yellow right when Dixon had been told many laps before we're super good on fuel full rich burn it all burn it down as I use Seth Rollins WWE reference burn it down go get it thousand percent go well couldn't losing speed i'm sorry was losing gap losing distance takuma was pulling away from dixie when dixie was at maximum attack full rich no restrictions that's real so that's that's where i would say yens even if he had fought, stayed ahead, pulled out, or tried to do whatever, um, I don't know if he stays there for very long, if it was even possible. When Sato went by, uh, there was no reeling him back in. So, yeah, I just don't think it was overconfidence here. I think it was more a case of lack of fully grasping what the guy behind him had left to uncork and holy cow did he do something uh mike jablo says kind of unusual that the dixon the king of fuel mileage got outfoxed by sato do you think dixon was that tight on fuel that he had to let sato take the lead with hope of catching him at the end or did cgr estimate sato's ability to run his fuel mixture richer in the final stint just having to go off of radio transmissions it sounded like they were totally happy with Dixie and he was able to run, you know, I, I haven't done the lap count, but, you know, uh, half or significant portion of the final stint uh, just fully, fully wound up and on the boil. So, yeah, uh, it's just really hard to know what the other team is doing. And apparently Sato was going nuts inside the cockpit not only using his steering wheel and adjusting fuel mixture, but also saving fuel with his right foot. So, yeah, uh, no one's going to make that mistake again. Uh, well, <laughs> to my surprise, we're still talking. It's 1025. So I'm going to get into the Rossi penalty, and then we're going to move, well, probably not tonight, uh, some questions about extractions with the arrow screen. This is one of my big notes uh, it's actually the biggest note that I made from the race, so I'm glad that we're going to be getting to that in a minute. Uh, Lance Snyder, Thomas Gross, and Lance Snyder again. Back with Rossi questions. A penalty for Rossi. Hashtag me personally. think that if you are going to give someone that severe of a penalty, it really needs to be much more clear-cut. Uh, it was much more of a, a poop-happens situation than anything. What says you? Thomas says, what's your take? says uh, race director Carl Novak said the lane wasn't clear and released, but watching the video, they sent Rossi before Sato had left his box. Was this a perfect time to say, quote, racing incident, move on? Also, do you think Rossi would have had anything for the front two at the end? Um, I'll get to Lance's second question in a minute. Watching the video replay over and over again from Pitwall pointed at Alexander's car, 
and Takuma, what is it, uh, two boxes behind him, pit stalls. So he wasn't directly behind him. I think he was one more back. Looking at that over and over again, the conversation that I had with Alexander's race strategist, Rob Edwards, it matched what I saw based with based on his views of things as well. And this is where I think, again, nuance, subtlety, did folks watch the replay in race control and watch it in slow motion? I don't know. As it landed with my eyes, you see Sato launch from his box a split second before Alexander does. He was not out into the lane when Rossi was given the signal to go. Uh, That's something that I looked for as well. And again, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I did look for this more than once watching replays and didn't see it happen. When Rossi was signaled to go, there was no Sato on pit lane, halfway, three quarters of the way onto pit lane for his crew chief to catch with his left eye and then hold Alexander. It was, in football, they call it a bang-bang play. It was kind of a bang-bang sequence where things happened so quickly one after the other where it appeared Rossi was done, his crew chief holding him, looked up, did not see anyone in the lane, and gave him the signal to leave. There's all, all, always some sort of micro-pause between the signal to go and the driver leaving. So since the penalty was not driver colliding with another driver, the penalty was actually a team-based penalty, unsafe pit release. That comes back to crew chief sending a driver out errantly in the way of another car. As I saw the video, yes, Takuma started to accelerate and begin the process of leaving his pit box. I don't know, a second, half a second before Alexander. It was before, no question. But if we're talking where was he in the process of getting out of his pit box to then be visibly, demonstrably on the lane, a potential hazard for being hit if Alexander were to be released, I did not see that as what was happening knowing that there's that, again, micro pause between getting the signal to go, the driver dumping the clutch, the tires spinning, getting some grip, pulling out of the box. If we're looking at the penalty, unsafe pit release, that is the crew chief making a bad, air quote, bad decision, I didn't see the car in the lane that Alexander would hit when he gave Alexander that command. So that's where I think this was a thousand percent wrong. And again, I'm not rooting for either. Hell, you've heard in my voice how happy I am as just a not reporter, not a 
what just as a person who's grown up loving the Indy 500, you can hear in my voice how happy I am for Takuma Sato. So, again, this isn't a case of rooting for one or the other in this pit lane penalty thing. I just didn't see anything that supported race control's decision. The ultimate caveat needs to be thrown out here, just like I was mentioning about NBC Sports. I'm not a race director. I did spend a year as a race director, though, locally in a road racing series. Not that that means anything, but I'm not the race director. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not, by no means as qualified, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn. Um, I don't know, man. It sure looked way over aggressive to me if we're talking penalty. I didn't see the need for a penalty because I didn't see anything that told me, oh, crew chief missed it. Crew chief didn't see that he was sending Alexander out into a calamity and crash. Didn't see that at all. So that's what my eyes saw watching the video review. Um, Lance closes by saying Rossi got that penalty. Uh, Then he managed to gain five spots in the restart before he wrecked um the car it says the progress was truly deployed anchor on progress was truly deployed Uh, was that a factor of setup and never imagining he would be that far back or general difficulty in passing thanks for asking that lance yeah so that was the most prime example of the added difficulty for passing at this year's 500 due to the aero screen and the changes in the Dirty air, the turbulent air coming off the cars. We had a guy running top two, top three with ease, pass anybody, any t- you know, up front, can zoom around one car, pass really easy back and forth. We saw he, uh, we saw Rossi and Dixon do that over and over and over again. Take that same car, capable of doing the same things up front, and throw that car at the back of the pack with, you know, a train of five, 10, 20 cars, whatever. All of a sudden, the worst effects of the new aero screen, aero wash were on display. So, yes, this was 100% situational, Lance. Um, I still haven't gotten the call to stop, but I'm going to because it's 1030. So I apologize uh, that I am not going to continue unless you're going, thank God, dude, shut up. Um, I'm going to say good night for tonight, and then I'll be back tomorrow at some point. <laughs> thank you. Well, we're picking up a lot later than expected. Uh, I thought I was going to be able to knock this out Tuesday morning and post it, but life doesn't always go according to my intent. Uh, it is now, it just clicked over to 9 o'clock on a Tuesday evening. We had a long day away from the house. And we're back catching up. So, uh, we're going to go to a couple of pals here. Ryan Terpstra, Steve Sell. Steve, you mentioned the contacts during the race. Some of the shunts being harder than others. So you thought you saw some drivers who were in shock and pain and disarray from the contact. Said it took some effort from them to push up and out of the cars. Um see mention here your closing point is uh it seems though the amr safety team is going to have a, or was having a pretty hard time getting drivers up and out of the car in a safe and timely manner and ryan mentions here question about the drivers getting out of the cars reminded me the helmet hoses seem to be an obstacle 
for two drivers who are a bit urgent, urgently getting themselves out of the cars while they're on fire. Uh, sorry, as I try and use my mouth to speak words, which does not always work the way as I had hoped. That's why I call this show my unpolished turd. I just leave in all the bad stuff because, yeah, there's usually more than enough to keep you laughing, I hope. So, Ryan, I noted the same exact thing, and Steve, uh, I'm probably going to pivot heavily off of Ryan's here. So we had Marcus Erickson and James Davison. They had fires, and they had to get out of the cars in a very timely manner due to that fire. And I know there were a number of fires, but I'm talking serious ones. And their helmet hoses were tethering devices. That's very worrisome. It worried me the minute that I saw it with Davison. He is fighting to get out because he was being held in by that helmet hose. If we think back to however many years ago, and I apologize for not remembering the exact year, wasn't uncommon if a driver crashed and was trying to get out expeditiously, you might see them reaching down and, and fighting with and tearing away at could be the radio connection, could be the, the drink bottle connection, could be both. It's been simplified pretty heavily where drivers have, you know, just call it a, an umbilical cord that connects simply instead of having a variety of different hoses and wires and whatever tethered to them. It's something that is very simple and straightforward to connect, disconnect, boom, they get right out. This Ryan and Steve took me back to the days before that where you had miscellaneous things holding a driver in the cockpit and they had to reach around and disconnect those things, tug at them, sometimes just rip them in half to get out based upon the emergency. And we saw that exact thing happen here with Davison and with Marcus, and it was troubling, very troubling. So two quick things jumped out. One, there is an absolute need in terms of aero screen development, and I'm going to put this hopefully in a little brain dump column here, ASAP. My number one note as the race started and took place after seeing the Davison deal was IndyCar has to have some sort of spec identical helmet disconnect system for all drivers that is rapid. And we know in sports cars, stock cars, off-road, there's the mag lock or whatever they call it, it's just magnet. It's a, that kind of simple connection where there's no actual hose sliding over a receptacle and being physically just clamped down in place. It's just two magnets going click, and it requires some force to undo them. Uh, but it's just that. It's two magnets coming together. Whether that's a solution or something else, there has to be something that is implemented ASAP that will allow drivers to get out either by standing up and the force, their just physical weight and force and momentum going up is enough force to break the mag, the magnetic lock or whatever else it is. But this cannot be something that keeps a driver physically tethered to the car while it is on fire. So the other thing that I was told after the race and yeah, this just strikes me as something where I, I get the intent, I get the goal here, but boy, this doesn't jump out as maybe the happiest thing. And it was team managers in the, whatever it was, pre-race team manager meeting. I can't tell you if it was 
directly before the race the day before whatever it was but all the teams were basically threatened hey if we see your driver's helmet hose flapping around disconnected we're going to black flag you period and there's concerns about trying to gain an aerodynamic advantage obviously there's concerns about driver cooling wasn't so much of an issue at the speedway on sunday uh, not as if it was cold but you didn't hear about drivers saying my goodness i was just roasting the whole time but there was a very deep very serious uh, threat slash penalty outlined to the teams before the race if we see anything coming disconnected you're going to get black flagged and you're going to do it well a you're going to come in and fix it but that's going to be a race killer so as a result here to close guys what happened is teams <laughs> you want to talk about using a gallon of crazy glue and all kinds of other i'm forgetting the name of that black uh adhesive stuff that they sell on the infomercials and whatnot but we're just talking cable ties we're talking all kinds of things to make absolutely sure there's no way these things are going to come off and i get what you're going after here but when it causes a secondary problem of people not being able to get out of the cars yes so gonna need to come up with something quick and fast to solve this we are going to Andy Merrick. Hey, Andy. Says, Marshall, there are plenty of things we've lost because of COVID. What are some positives, things that had to change for the 500 this year, which will make the race better for the future? Huh. One jumps out, Andy. And it, it might only be one. Who knows? Maybe there are more. The efforts by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar to express how much they appreciate their fans, those that buy tickets, those that tune in, of which we learned today there were not nearly enough. I would say the rabid love and give back of love to all the fans that make the Indy 500 what it is, that's the best, that's the most positive, and I hope it is the most enduring. It's not as if IMS and IndyCar haven't or don't done that, don't know it, haven't said it in the past. They have. But the taking this to volume 11 outpouring, that to me is something I'd love to see that be a permanent deal and not to just pander, but to really put them in a place where they should be at all times. We have such an amazing institution at Indianapolis. Those who have their streaks, those who have their seats for generations, those who just love this and live for this constantly. This was a big thing. Losing out was a big, big thing. And I'll tell you, uh, the fact that we had something as crazy as COVID knocking all these norms and traditions out. I love to see that outpouring, Andy. So hopefully, more than hopefully, everything goes back to normal for the next Indy 500. Uh, everything is just quadruple good. 
and we don't have to think about any of this bad stuff again and we go back normal race just period that happens forever okay even if that's the case i would still absolutely love to see this outpouring going on and on and on and becoming a fixture in what they do really do believe that this just needs to be uh, part of how they go forward part of how they do business and so i'd say that's it everything else i don't know uh everything being a zoom meeting everything being socially distanced people not allowed here there i mean go on and on all the things that didn't necessarily make people happy um i don't exactly know uh how any of that jumps out as super positive but i would say this is the one they should keep and maybe that's a big thing in building new fans showing that boy when it comes to the indy 500 this is like a family gathering the ones we know those of you that have been here forever but also new generations, youngsters and kids, first-time fans. Hey, I think this is a big thing. This TV rating, this this is a telling thing. Know that there are so many norms, again, that aren't normal. Folks aren't looking to that late May spot for the Indy 500. I get all that. Also know that as some old crank that no one ever respected or listened to was trying to say today on social media, those of us who were covering it, uh, did such a poor job that nobody watched it, but all that stuff aside from that jackass, uh, we have a case where, honestly, and I'm not mentioning his name on purpose, by the way, because I'm a big believer that you don't feed idiots with oxygen. So it's not out of fear of mentioning his name. I actually can't wait to see him next year, hopefully at the Indy 500, because that guy is going to need, that. he's going to have a couple extra a holes torn into him but all that stuff aside uh even though all the media were at fault for the low rating according to that moron um this is something where if you want to build more fans you want to grow the base just reputationally the indy 500 being the biggest friendliest most welcoming major sporting event in the country that would be a wonderful thing andy to grow and foster if you're going to get people to look in and care and wonder, hey, what's this thing about? Uh, I don't know anything about racing or I don't know NASCAR from IndyCar, whatever car, but this place has a reputation for being fan first, family first, growing and just super, come on in, we love you. That would be not the worst thing to do if you're trying to have more fans compared to less fans. We're going to go to... Not a new pal. I mean, she's been awesome ever since she came into the world of IndyCar with NTT data. But we're going to go to a pal, newer pal to the show in terms of submitting questions, that being Margot Cook. She asks, who nailed their driver intro? And throws in the perfect official hashtag of all my podcasts. She says, hashtag me personally. She thinks it's Renus VK, and you'd be certainly a contender. I mean... Right, Margo? I mean, Renus's little throwback to the love boat, which I don't I think he was even alive while it was on. But yeah, it was just very 70s, 80s TV show intro slash kind of disco move. 
it was awesome. His little spin and finger guns, right? Wink, wink. That was awesome. The other one, which I loved, and boy, I'm forgetting this, and I shouldn't because I should be better at my job, but whomever Pato Award was with in his row of introductions, I'll definitely note that Pato, who was introduced first of those three, waved or whatever, and then did the little kind of patting of the heart to signal to the world that he's thinking of them, you're in his heart, loves you and whatnot. It's like, oh, it's a nice gesture. And it's totally on point for the kid, too. He's crazy, but my kind of crazy, the best kind of crazy. Um, But just also good heart, good kid, sweetheart of a kid. And I'm like, yeah, that's so you. And then I forget who it was on the outside. wasn't in the middle, but the driver on the outside, they did the same exact thing. So I'm like, come on, man. You know, not that you can't be heartfelt, too, but, you know, get your own little, get your own little self dap going on here don't just take from pato i'll tell you what so thanks for that margo let's see where else are we going to go we're going to wind this episode down because we're certainly going to have at least two uh where are we going to go daniel summers gill thank you i mentioned this i think last week and i forgot that it was you uh in the come up it's an eating crow uh i asked a few weeks ago if you thought alonso's lack of racing would impact his any 500 performance do you think it did Hashtag me personally. He seemed to have an anonymous race, hardly featured even before clutch issues, hindered him, and never looked like troubling the top 10. Uh, And then just one more on Fernando from John Richter, asking for your gut opinion. Is that a fat joke? If not, it's a good one. Uh, Will we ever actually see Fernando Alonso again in the 8500? If so, what non-Honda team do you think he would return with? Yeah. So... I'll get to yours in just a sec, John. Daniel, I mentioned last week, forgetting that you were the person who had asked, you had fired this in before we got going at the Speedway. I said, no, I don't think it's going to be an issue, even though he's done so little racing. I just don't foresee it being an issue. And then he crashed in practice, making a really kind of sort of fairly basic error. So I'm not saying that like, hey, I'm Mr. Race Car Driver and I'd never make that error. I'm sure I would make that error every time of getting too low, coming out of turn four, dipping his left front wheel onto the apron, upsetting the car, and then it getting spat into the wall. Connor Daly had the same exact thing happen in the race. When that happened with Fernando, it did just strike me. Daniel, that although you asked that question a few weeks ago and I said, nope, can't think of it. The guy has done so many reps. No, not at all. Well, I believe I apologized to you last week and said, yeah, I was totally wrong. Uh, That was just seemingly an error of lack of repetition. Granted, he'd done many miles already by that point in practice, but still, yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I can tell you that Possibly the greatest shock from this year's Indy 500 for hashtag me personally. It wasn't so much the Team Penske cars not being a factor throughout everything up until the race. Joseph Newgarden climbing up to fourth. Very impressive, right? No chance to win, but at least we had a Penske car there, thereabouts towards the front. So that corrected itself. The thing that shocked me the most, Fernando Alonso, one of the world's greatest race car drivers alive and craig hampson 
one of the greatest race engineers alive on the planet coming together should have been devastating to the rest of the field. And I haven't had a chance to catch up with Snoop Hampy Hamp and just get the download, but that blew me away, Daniel. That's the thing that really struck me. Knowing how effective Fernando was in 2017 with another living great and legend among race engineering, Eric Bretzman at Andretti Autosport. Uh, wow. So we could look at qualifying and say, okay, well, the other two cars with Pato and Oliver weren't exactly rocket ships, weren't terrible, but they weren't rocket ships. So it would be strange to think that Fernando would be a crazy outlier that, you know, crazy faster than them. Just really didn't expect things to be so distant and remote. As you mentioned, anonymous during the race, I tweeted out the same thing, Daniel, like, Hey, where is he? Whether that was on the timeline of his clutch problem or not, I don't know, but it did just stand out that somewhere around the halfway point of like, I, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if he's here. I know he's here, but I don't know if he's here because I don't see or feel his presence. Really bizarre. So to get to John's question to close on Fernando, heard about, of course, that his new old Formula One team is going to next year, two-year contract. Renault has said, not going to be doing the 500, my man. My guess would be... So that's 21 and 22 taken. I, if Fernando doesn't change drastically personality wise and life view wise, John, I would very much expect him to be back in 23 because he is not good at having a pit in his stomach for things not ending the right way. Why do I have this just wacky, wacky idea? I don't know. The guy who felt his Formula One career did not end the way it should is going back (laughs) at 40 years old with a team that, while improved this year, zero people expect them to win races and have anything close to maybe a championship challenger for Mercedes. Zero people believe that. Uh, Or for any that do, they have to know deep inside, ain't happening. So... If we just take that example, John, the guy is not good with unfinished business. He must be leaving, be leaving, not believing, but be leaving the Indy 500 with a quadruple. Come on, man. That was hot garbage in terms of expectations not being met. You know the way his mind works. Victory, championships, or nothing. He's not going to relent from those expectations when things are so far off the mark like they were, got to believe that's going to eat at him and to have him come back. So you mentioned what non-Honda team by 2023, brother. I don't know. I, I, is McLaren going to be their own team by then? Uh, again, who knows? Would Ed Carpenter run him? I'm very positive he would if there's budget to run him. So I don't know would say if it isn't McLaren, I'm struggling to think who else it might be. Although he is highly respected, folks are having to go back to 2017 to remember 
when the Andretti team was the dominant one in the race. Takuma Sato won that thing. Fernando was a part of the dominant team of the event, and he showed very, very well. It wasn't as if, though, he was in a whatever number car team, and he was the one that was just whooping up on everybody, and he was the exception. No, he performed beautifully, but he was also in the best team that year at the Speedway. Just mentioning this because... If it isn't a team that has some sort of existing tie with him where money can be found and they're good at finding money, I don't know how many other teams are Chevy teams are going out of their way to bring Fernando Alonso back in 2023 when his last Indy 500 being 2020 was super anonymous, failed to qualify the year before, And if we're just talking, boy, give me the lasting memory of Alonzo being a badass in 2017. So there might be some things conspiring against this, John. Hope not, but we'll have to see. Uh, We're going to get to one or two more here. Peter Nutt. Well, this is a nice question. How many hours did you put in last week? Your top three highlights, perhaps. A rookie rundown. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. I don't know how many hours I put in, Peter, and it actually extends back about three weeks. Uh, I'm just sharing this because you asked. Uh, we had Robin, who was going through, you know, a lot of, uh, like my wife and I have been doing for a long time, a lot of medical obligations. I'm not going to get into his business, but you know, many, many hours per day he's having to look after himself, and amen to that. Some other awesome folks on the racer staff who had some other challenges that were taking them away from their normal availability. So by sheer coincidence, the normal two to three person reporting attack was down to one to one and a half for significant, for the majority of the event. Uh, race day, finally, we had three folks working together, uh, pumping out volume. So, but anyways, yeah, man, uh, just thank you for asking that. Cause obviously you're asking cause you realize that, yeah, I was awake a lot. And I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I was brewing fresh pots of coffee at an alarming rate, <laughs> a really alarming rate. And getting up, uh, I think the earliest I got up to start working was about 5.45, 5.50. And, yeah, but usually in the office, 6.30 minimum. Um, and then working till five, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever sometimes. So, yeah. Hey, it's actually the absolute norm for the Indy 500. You just, you go nuts for a couple weeks before to build up a cache of, uh, of content. And then once it gets rolling, you do the same. So, uh, I know that that's, I can't vouch for other reporters hours, but I know that the routine is fairly similar and then putting together some other stuff there. The John Andretti 16-part podcast, that took a little while putting most of that together over qualifying weekend, uh, between runs, between whatever, just listening back through the audio and cleaning up whatever and blah, blah, blah. And then doing the Justin Wilson interviews. Uh, I think the first one I did, which was with Mark Weber, was at the Silverstone. He called me while driving 
away from I think Friday at the Silverstone F1 race, um, and then those went on throughout and actually just finished the last one with Dario Monday morning. Um, he and I had been playing phone tag for a long time. So, uh, anyways, just trying to knock out some other stuff too. So, top three highlights, my fr- my my Dutch friend. I don't know if I can do that right now, and that's because my brain's a bit cloudy. You just need a little bit of context of time to help with context to look back. If I'm just talking about my favorite three things from the race or the event, uh, I mean, James Hinchcliffe's mask, boy, that, that was something, huh? Oh, my goodness. That boy is so disturbed. Uh, that for sure. Um, I already mentioned this a little bit earlier. Just on the hashtag me personally front, y'all helped raise $5,700, for Ryan Hunter Race Charity. That was pretty amazing. Um, Number one thing, I realize two of these are kind of skewing personal, so I apologize, I guess. But uh, the story about the fan that rocked up in Michael Shank's office in Ohio and said that he wanted to, uh, the story I know that it was shared um, that the team did was that he said he wanted to donate money to our medical expenses. Uh, as I understood it, as it was told to me when it, cause Shank called me right after the gent came in. Um, he was actually just looking to sponsor the car and Mike converted that into a help thing, uh, and asked that as part of sponsoring, doing a little sponsorship of the car, if in that, uh, could put a st- uh, my wife's support sticker on there. So Shank being Shank, he said, well, let's just not turn this into a financial thing for me. Let's help the Pruitts. And they did. And then Mike contributed some money of his own on top of that. So uh, that, I would say, is just amazing. Really, truly amazing. Uh, the amount of love that came in once folks saw, saw that story, I'd known about it, and I'd, I'd kept it quiet and didn't tell my wife and surprised her with it when that uh, when the email went out first actually mispronounced or misspelled her name throughout it but that was fine um it was just pretty amazing uh so uh, yeah i i tell you y'all that do amazing things with helping one another you all know if you're listening and have listened for a little while i should say you know that that stuff's really important to me and so the fact that so many of you jump right in whenever there's a cause or something, I just look at importance in life, things that I do, you do, we do. And it's these kinds of things where whatever success I've had professionally, meh, whatever, none of that really matters. It really does. It's cool. And it feels nice to know that for select periods i didn't totally suck but meh no one's going to be talking about the time the team that i worked for as a assistant engineer finished second at this indycar race who cares the things where y'all are donating money and helping and people's lives are improved because of it like those are real things in the history of the world and life that truly matter so that's just, I'd say, the kind of stuff that stands out the most to me here, Peter, that makes me happy, knowing from my wife and how much hard work she has put in to get better, get healthy, 
this is such a long standing process. We're almost, we're coming up here, I think in a couple days on the quote two year anniversary of this, uh, fight. Um, and we're going to be fighting for, I don't know, another year or two, who knows how long it's going to, this isn't a short fight. The ability for her to know and root for Jack Harvey, who she's never met. She's never met Mike Shank. Uh, but hearing her in the bedroom, watching the Indy 500, she kept the door closed. I was on the couch watching and taking notes and whatever, trying to be a reporter, but listening to her like yelling, cheering, shouting for Jack because he was carrying her name in the Indianapolis 500, something her husband's been a part of forever. My name's never been on a car, man. (laughs) But her sure has, and that makes me so happy, right? Uh, It's just that's the coolest thing. I'd say the greatest memory. Thanks from this amazing fan who want to remain anonymous. Thanks to Michael Shank elevating all this to the Indy 500 instead of the mid Ohio race, which was the original plan, uh, turning this into something that helped us with our GoFundMe and medical bills. Um, but just honestly, Peter, listening to my wife, losing her mind, cheering on Jack. My wife loves to cook, loves to bake. And when I told her that Jack loves to bake and I just nicknamed him Jack the Baker, she went straight to YouTube to look up and find some videos of Jack doing baking and whatnot. And she just, he's a vegan. She's close to a vegan. Um, She just found this great link knowing that he was going to be representing her in the Indy 500. And they finished ninth. Wasn't a win. I don't care. It was a positive finish. So, yeah, that made me so happy looking at how much it meant to her and her family, her brothers, sisters-in-law, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, they were, you know, it's a humble family, uh, like my own. You know, nobody other than maybe in the local area here, nobody knows our name. Uh, we haven't done anything in life that would make people know us. Um, same with my wife's family, Peter. So just beautiful, humble uh, hardworking people, military veterans, uh, you name it. It was so cool to see them uh, react to their sister, their baby sister, getting this kind of love uh, at a big motor race that you know means something in the world of sports. So that was pretty darn cool. Um, we're going to close here with this episode knowing that there's... Should I say that? Because sometimes I find stuff that... Uh, uh, I, uh, you know what, we're going to close here with more than one question, but I'm going to finish this, uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, Victoria Morrell. Hey, Victoria. Uh, hope you can answer this question. We've had an extended reign by Simon Pagano as Indy 500 winner. And of course they were, uh, there were those years, um, because of the world wars, but with the Indy 500 only nine months away, I'm curious if this will be Takuma Sato's, uh, his reign will be the shortest for a 500 champion, they're not champions. They won the biggest race, but it wasn't the championship culminator. Um, <laughs> I think it might be. Uh, boy, why am I thinking there's some other race, Indy 500, that might have been held a little bit later? But let's just go with yes, you're 100% right. And if by chance you're not, 
well, I'm going to fight whomever it is that tries to correct us. Truth and facts. We live in a post-truth world, Victoria. So you are you are 100% correct, and don't anybody tell us otherwise. So, yeah, it must be. Um, I'll tell you, though, I think... I don't think Takuma's even going to notice this. Uh, he might mention it, but I don't think it's really going to stand out. I think so much about this year is just so crazy that it's going to be one of those things where, yeah, he just goes like, hey, cool, whatever. Um, we're going to close here with Robbie Berger and Marshall. If I use my time machine from a previous episode, went to June 2012 and told you to your face that Sato would win his second Indy 500 with RLL in 2020 and Scott Dixon would still only have one victory. Would you a laugh B Google the local men's mental institution and have me committed C laugh again. Uh, I would probably go with D Satan is a lie. That's what I'd probably do here. Robbie. Um, because I would figure that you were just being sent by demons, uh, because at that stage there's, of course, none of us, I think would have projected he'd be a two timer by 2020. Uh, yeah. So we'll avoid the mental institutions. Uh, there's a lot of family history there. Not a joke. I know it's a funny story, but a lot of, a lot of family history there with my mother. Uh, so we're going to avoid those because I know how bad they have been. I would say we would form a prayer circle around you. Um, we would probably try and make sure that you weren't a Terminator because this seems like some sort of diversionary tactic. Uh, to have us kind of looking and scrunching up our heads and staring at our phones, tapping away at our iPhone 5s or whatever they would have been back then. And while we were distracted, maybe you do the little red laser eyes and then shoot us and we all die. <clears throat> Prayer, Terminator check, um, something in that department, Robbie. So, yeah. Uh, and would you pray for a Terminator? Right? Knowing that it has, in theory, human skin on it, but it's actually a machine. I don't know. Uh, if we're all God's creations, and, well, the Terminator is a creation, someone created it, does that... I, I don't know. My my theological knowledge only goes as far as my Skynet search engine allows me. All right, we're done for this episode Thank you all for sending in the goodies here. We're done in less than an hour and a half, which I think is not bad considering all the questions. We still have to get to in a part two. I'm going to try and rock those out tomorrow, Wednesday, or today, Wednesday, whenever you're listening to this. I don't know. Uh, Thursday at the latest. And we got Bobby Rahal, who's going to be our guest to talk about their Indy 500 win. And I know he has one cool story to tell us that maybe we'll open with so i bet i hope you're going to enjoy that and what else oh the weekend sports cars which I haven't done for a couple of weeks for the aforementioned reason of kind of being uh one of the only folks to knock out content uh we're going to record that here too for those of you that listen to that so yay uh other than that what we got mid ohio that's supposed to be announced uh here asap uh my brain is seriously uh, throwing in the towel here. So 
I am Marshall Pruitt. This is Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm looking forward to speaking to you tomorrow.